This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, radiotherapists. It is 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning and you're listening to Triple R, so you know what that means. It's radiotherapy time! I am Dr Training Wheels and we've got a very exciting show lined up for you this morning. We've got a very special guest in the studio with us today. Very special. Trina Majumda is a biomedical engineer working on making hip replacements better. She's going to tell us about her research because it's all very futuristic and interesting. <laughs> um, so I can't wait for that. And our panellists, they're just the best. I'm so glad you're all here. It's a beautiful morning and it's made all the more beautiful by the company in the studio oh, here. Nice. We've got Dr Panel Beater here. He's pressing the buttons as always. And thank goodness for that because we'd be lost without yes. him. Um, he's going to talk about qualies and wallies and maybe some dallies. I'm not quite <laughs> sure what all the acronyms mean, but he's going to sort all that out for us. And um, as I said, thank goodness for him pushing the buttons. We've also got Dr Capri here. Dr Capri is a GP and medical educator. She's here to have lots of important opinions on things and um, she'll just be sharing her wisdom all morning. Oh, Does that pressure. sound about right? Oh, pressure's on. <coughs> yep. She's got best. some hot, su- hot <laughs> stuff up her sleeves that she might bring out if she needs to, but we'll see what happens. Um, I'm Dr Training Wheels. I'm a medical student. It's my first time hosting radiotherapy this morning because Dr Doolittle is gallivanting around Europe, the poor thing. Um, So that's very exciting. Um, Who knows what's going to happen? It's all very unpredictable in here this morning. Um, Don't forget... While I've got you here, Radiothon probably feels like it was a million years ago, but there's still time to subscribe. You have until 5pm on the 28th of September and you're still in the running for fabulous prizes, so don't forget to sign up. And if you've got a bone to pick or something nice to say, hop on Facebook. You can find us at Radiotherapy on Triple R and give us a piece of your mind. We love hearing from you. I'm excited. Let's get started. Just listen to this. How are you, team? Dr Capri, how are you doing? Yeah, very excited. Uh, uh, I'm jealous of uh, Dr Doolittle having, yes. to, having to take another holiday, poor guy. But I'm very excited that you're at the helm because I think this is going to be a great show and the topics I'm really looking forward oh, to hearing Thanks, Capri. Well, it's nice to see you. And our special guest, Trina Majumda, how are you? I'm wonderful. It's so nice to be back in the country after doing some research elsewhere. Oh, hopefully we can talk about that later too. Is hopefully. this your first time on radio? This is my first time on radio. It's been a dream of mine for ages to get on Triple R, so it's finally happened. Oh, my goodness. And with you, my best friend, for many years. Oh, my goodness. This is so lovely. (laughs) And we've got so many newbies in the room. We're lucky to have Dr Capri and Dr Panelbeater, the veterans of Triple R, with us today. Dr (laughs) Panelbeater, how are you? Jeez, I'm well. How are you? Very, very well. Thank you. Feeling good? First time on the anchor? Um, Yep, nervous, but good. (laughs) It's, It's great to be here. And you've got something to share with us, haven't you? I do. Are we going to go there right now? I reckon we could, unless anyone yeah. has any other little chit-chat. Oh, I'm so no. excited to hear about the Wallies. <laughs> Let's do it. I know about the Wallies and Dollies, but <clears throat> not, the, not what's the Wallies. A, what's a Wally? Yeah, there's nothing like a good acronym, is there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, there was a, a, a segment on, um, on therapy, uh, oh, it must be about a month or so ago, and it was talking about uh, management in EU units and about prioritising and triage and mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. And that got me thinking about something that I uh, come across a bit in my work. I'm currently teaching a course on NGOs in development. Mm-hmm. One of the little exercises we do um, at the start to get, you know, the brain ticking over at start of semester is, you know, talk about, you know, 
views and opinions of development NGOs and what they do and how they do it and where they do it. And eventually the conversation usually gets around to how do we determine, you know, whether it's a good NGO or not. Or, you know, when we start talking about donating money and things like that. And that just starts... measurable just outcomes, the, right? Yeah. NGO, just remind me... Oh, what sorry. Yeah, non-government organisations. Right. And what does that mean exactly? So it, it means um, organisations... So in the development sector, what it means is it means organisations that are typically funded by donors, um, not always, but very usually, donors from um, relatively rich countries. And those donors might be the government to the state or they might be individual donors like you and me and that's where we're going to go with this um and um and then they'll uh, undertake some kind of project in you know what we conventionally understand to be a developing country mm, okay all right um so this conversation gets underway and they want to know you know if i'm donating money which is the best kind of money I um, can spend on which kind of project is okay. the most, and they start using language like effectiveness. Yes. <laughs> and that's where dallies and collies come into play. So what's a dally? Remind okay. us what a dally is. A dally is a disability adjusted life year. Yeah. Okay. Right. And a quality is a quality of life um, year. All right. Now okay. this. When do we use those? Okay. We use them when we want to measure... Look, it basically, just one step back, this is all, I guess, health economics is where all this is coming from. It's where people want to work out how much money can I spend to get what kind of results on the health outcome for an individual. So, like, where can we get bang for our buck? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So, um if you want to know, you know, if I if I spend X amount of dollars on um, on this treatment, will that bring that person back to full health? Mm. Um, will it extend their life? Will it, etc., etc., etc. So, which is the best? Let me give you some um, very specific um, definitions, and we can set up a contrast between the the qualies and the dallies. So, a quality one quality, right? Quality adjusted life year. Mm-hmm. Um, equals one year of perfect health. Oh, that'd be nice. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> one year of perfect health. It sounds like Nirvana. So if you get sick, if you get sick for if you get sick for six months, um, you have a you know a point five quality, right? Uh, okay. And then so the the medical profession, the um, the uh, economists, the health administrators, and so on, they'll decide. Okay, what's the cost to get you back to full health? Right. Okay. The cost of a quality. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the cost of a quality. Now, a deli is very similar to that. It does take all of that into account, but it also accounts for the cost of a loss of uh, resulting from premature death. Okay. And that's when it becomes really interesting in development world, mm. you know, because, um, you know, we've got a pretty good lifespan in, in Australia. What are we, men late 70s, women early 80s, something like that? Yeah, sounds about right. Okay. And, you know, and rich countries have that. And so one of the objectives often in development policy for poor countries is to extend lifespan because mm. that usually means that families will be smaller. Oh. And it also means that the longer people live, um, the more productive they are economically, yeah. you know, in crude terms. Yeah. Okay. So that's the distinction to be made between the quali and the deli. Then it's not an either or. Um, Delhi is younger. It's from about the 1990s and the qualities are from about the 1970s. Okay. All right. Um, 
then how do you do this? Like, can you just do this on a, on a personal level, of course? You can just, you know, the doctor can ask the patient, I've got this option for you. So let me run by a scenario for you. And we'll do the individual and then we'll go to the, the global. Mm. So the doctor says to the patient, I can undertake an intervention and that intervention will restore you to full health for one year, but there's a 20% chance that you'll die in the procedure. Oof. Mm. Oh, jeez. Mm. Okay. So the, the patient um, then has to make uh, an assessment of what the value of decision is right okay on the individual level as awkward as that conversation would be Mm. um you know that would be um maybe something related to some uh maybe a cancer or something of that of that nature you know somebody might say you know we can give you care to keep you you know active and (laughs) well-ish um but you know we won't cure you so to speak or you might want to go into some serious heavy treatment, um, and it, but it might might actually accelerate things. Um, you can do that at an individual level. At a global level, you can't kind of do that. If you're talking about whole populations, you know, what do you do? You know, how do you... So you yeah, okay. Yeah. No, I'm just listening. I'm just <laughs> interested. Go on. So we can't say to everybody in, let's pick a poor country, um, and I'm sure we don't have any listeners in Sierra Leone, for example... We but, might. We might. Let's hope we do. Yeah, we might. We might. <laughs> Hello to all Sierra Leone listeners. <laughs> how do you make? How do you make a, uh, a health policy on behalf of Sierra Leone? Well, you do it at a population level rather mm. than at an individual level. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so I've got a couple of. Um, uh, there's a couple of uh, very typical. Um, issues that face health, you know, health issues that face the developing world rather than the um, the developed world. I'll give you five. Okay. Right? This sounds like a, we should make a board game out of this, but go on. Yes, okay. the dallies, the qualies and the wallies. Yeah. So think of um, surgical procedure for um, Kaposi's sarcoma, okay, so an issue with um, HIV AIDS, um, uh, uh, antiretroviral therapies, um, prevention of transmission of um, transmission of disease during pregnancy, condom distribution, and education for high risk groups. Okay, so there are five health programs that you could fund. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and they all sound pretty good. Yep. yep. But resources are limited, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So how do you decide which one if to fund? Where to put your money? Where to mm-hmm. put your money? Okay. Um, and, you know, to bring it back to the personal, if you're looking to make a personal donation to an NGO, you want to know which mm. NGO is doing the most effective work there. Mm. Or if you're thinking about foreign aid policies, my government spending money mm. on the one that's got the most effective. Not that our government spends much money on foreign mm. aid, but anyway. Yeah. Well, that's a whole other case. Yeah, sorry. Continue. <laughs> sorry. Please go yeah. um, do you want to have a crack at thinking about which, in quali and Delhi terms, or just just Delhi terms, which of those is going to have the greatest return on investment? Do you want me to remind you of them? Yeah. Yes, please. Surgical treatment for Kaposi sarcoma. Okay. Uh, antiretroviral therapy. Prevention of transmission of disease during pregnancy. Condom distribution and education for high risk groups. I'll go for condom distribution, I reckon. I think I'd go for education. 
or the pregnancy one's pretty good too. I'm going for the condoms. Hmm. Okay. So what when you, when when we're answering, what we're saying is that a dollar spent on our chosen one is going to return the most know, improved most lives. Yep. Yeah. Should we say? Okay. Okay. So treating Carpona's. Uh, <laughs> uh, Kaposi's sarcoma is considered cost-effective in a rich country. Okay, yes, I would, but I not would. in a poor country. Okay, that's not all right. Yeah, that kind of that makes, makes sense. sense. So it's yeah, quite a specific absolutely. individual yeah. level. Yeah, yeah. Mm. that's right. That's right. So we're setting up this contrast between considering it on an individual level, where the doctor can ask the patient, and on a program level. Mm. Um, Antiretroviral therapy is estimated to be 50 times as effective as Holy the treatment of Kaposi. So for every dollar you spent on either of those two, you'd get 50 times more return on your quali or your deli. Mm. Okay. <laughs> um, and with Kaposi, you're already quite sick, right? Yeah, that's quite a late-stage thing, isn't it? Capri probably knows most about that. Well, I'm no specialist in that field either, but, uh, yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty bad cancer. It's one yeah. of those AIDS-defining illnesses. Yes, you're pretty end of, yeah, mm. end stage. You can yeah. start taking the antiretrovirals once you're still, you know, not, not that much affected. Or even before, right, in... in Preventatively, it can be taken. Yep. Is that right? Yep. yep. And that's the exactly that's the direction this ranking okay. is going. You've, okay. you've hit so the nail point, on the head. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, how, how is your intervention? It's most useful if you yeah. do it at an earlier stage. Yeah, okay. A yep. larger group of people. So that's that was a 50 times increase by getting it at the ent- um, uh, auto, uh, the uh, antiretroviral stage mm. rather than at the um, um, surgical treatment. Then, if you got it, got it. If you addressed it at a prevention stage during pregnancy, mm-hmm. um, it's five times effective again. Wow! Yes, so oh, fifty times goodness. five. Yep. Yep. What's that? I can't do maths. What's fifty times five? Two two hundred and fifty. Two hundred. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. Um, and my eyes are failing me here. Sorry, guys. Um, and um, a condom distribution is about twice as effective as that. So that again. makes 500. 500 times, I'm just yeah. trying to keep track. Yeah. Okay. And education for high-risk groups is about twice effective in again. <gasps> again. One so, thousand so in, times. Oh, so, Trina. Well, you ding, know, ding, ding. <laughs> in the mathematicians tell me that in total the best of these interventions is therefore estimate about 1,400 times. Because so I guess there's a... Um, oh, okay, because Carposi's better than yep. nothing, I guess. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. Um, as the least good, and 50, so 1,400 times different. So wow. that's on paper, but what is actually able to be executed? That's a good question. That's, that's for me, that's why I said the condoms, because I think that's sort of on the ground, they're there, you hand them out. Tangible kind of. And with education, it's harder to yeah. actually get that Yeah, and this is, no, that's... That's right, and that's the question a lot of the students then then put up. And then we um, find ourselves wondering about how NGOs can take this mathematical formula um, and then come up with an answer and says, okay, well, it's clearly, if we've only mm. got, you know, $100,000, then clearly education programs are mm. what we've got to do. Mm. But, of course, the reality is, is quite different because they <laughs> might not be able to operationalise that mm, yes. as a priority. Yes. For example... Buying just, a billion of condoms and giving them out is... Well, in one of the one of the sad stories of AIDS in Africa, for example, is that many countries prohibit the yes, distribution yes, of condoms. Yes. So even though it's a uh, an economically and sound and rational mm. and um, wonderful intervention, 
um, and the qualies and the delis tell you so. Yes, you can't actually. <laughs> you can't actually do it. No. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And what's a wa- what's a wally? Did we get to a wally? Oh, uh, wallies are a bit mischievous. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a well. It's supposed to be a well-being adjusted. It sounds um, a bit nebulous. Yeah. It sounds like something you should be looking on for Pokemon Go. The yeah. Yes. <laughs> the wallies and the qualies. Yeah. Um, yeah, wallies, I came across it when um, you may have come, many people would have heard of Peter Singer talk about effective <gasps> altruism. And Sorry, the, I'm just swooning. And, 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 the life, <laughs> and the life you can save. Yes. So um, the effective altruist movement, of, uh, you know, they're big fans of this rational thinking, mm. right? And they're, you know, big subscribers to dallies and qualies. Okay. But because they're so rational and so consequentialist, okay. it's often the target for the critic, you know, that's obviously sure. a target of criticism. Mm. And so wallies is an attempt to... Bit of in- a response to that. Bit of a response to that, to try and incorporate, you know, this notion of well-being, so it includes happiness. Okay. Uh-huh. And it okay. includes environmental circumstances. And okay, uh, to appeal to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. How interesting. That's fascinating. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very Dr. welcome. Panel beater. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And we are about to start chatting to our very special guest, Trina Majumda. We're joined by Trina Majumda today. She is a biomedical engineer completing her PhD at Monash Uni in the biomaterials used in prosthetic hips for replacement. Yes, that's correct. She develops funky materials and she hopes they'll improve hip replacements and she also uses a 3D printer, so she's basically the future. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm just going to go straight to you because yeah, I don't sure, really understand sure, sure. what you do and I think you'll be able to explain it much better. You're a biomedical engineer. What exactly does that mean? Okay, so um, in my undergraduate degree, I did materials engineering, uh, biomedical science. So what that actually means for my day-to-day work is that I look at materials that will go in the body and that need to work well with the body. So is that biomaterials? Is that what that means? Yes. That's another word I wanted to clarify. Yep. Thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so what... What's wrong with current hip replacement prostheses? Actually, not too much. They're they're pretty good for the most part. Um, But we do have some problems still where lots of patients need to have them replaced Mm. after, sorry, to have their replacements replaced after a certain number of years. So they don't last very long? Um, Yes, but that's not because of the implants themselves. That's because of the way they interact with the body. So a lot of times patients will be um, very active and actually, so... Hip replacements were developed back in the day when our well, our elders were really not that active, didn't do too much, okay. didn't need to have like a very active lifestyle. Right. Yeah. But these days we have such a larger population over the age of 60 and they're very active. So you see all your, your grandmothers and grandfathers playing tennis and so on. Mm, right. Yeah. So, so the, the changing replac- demographic means the, yeah, the prostheses the are no in good. The past, they don't do as well as they should be. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So what we want to do now is improve them in terms of how the bone interlocks with the surface of the implant. Ooh. So if they're fixed in better, they're going to work better for the whole time. So what happens at the moment? That doesn't happen at the moment. It doesn't really happen at the moment. So the most popular alloy for titanium hip replacements is a titanium-based one. So titanium is beautiful. I love titanium. <laughs> it's my favourite. <laughs> Such a materials engineer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to be infatuated with a metal. Well, it's so good. It's so well-behaved. It doesn't like. It doesn't cause havoc in the body. It doesn't like set your immune system afire. 
But and it's really, very strong and light as well, right? Yes, it's very good. But okay. the other thing is, because it's so well behaved, it doesn't really do much for the body either. Oh, it's just kind of sitting there. It's just kind of sitting there, and the and the bone cells and so on. They don't really like to stick to the surface. They don't really like to wiggle around and and grow into the surface. And is that what you're trying to make happen? Yes, I'm trying to make the titanium surface a bit more active in a couple of different ways. So, so what are the qualities of a biomaterial? So it means it doesn't um, interfere with any other bodily functions. Is that what you mean by something that's yeah, so there's a couple of different definitions and the ideas surrounding it are changing over the years. But basically, um, the old definition was that it doesn't really do any damage to the body, mm. right? That's, right? That's your idea of biomaterial. Bad. Yeah. Okay. So these days we want it to be a bit more a bit more positive. So in the terms of it allows for, for like the, the good cells and the good proteins and so on to adhere and a couple of other things like that. Wow. Because bone, I think this is a bit of a misconception. Bone is alive. Bone right. is Bones alive. are changing dynamic structure in the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not something I would think of when I think of bone. I would think of it as, you know, you have them when you you have little ones when you're born and then they <laughs> get bigger slowly and then you kind of just You're just stuck them, with them. Just like a yeah, like a frame. But it's actually yeah. changing throughout life, right? Yeah, yeah. So your bone is constantly remodeling itself. So there's that old statistic that I think, you know, it, it it's been kicking around for a while that your skeleton replaces itself every seven years. Wow. But not just like on the seventh year at Bang On. <laughs> But yeah, over the whole process, so your osteoblasts, they're my, they're my best friends, Ooh. and your osteoclasts. What are they? So the osteoblasts are the uh, cells that build up your bone. Uh. The osteoclasts are the cells that are more responsible for um, for deconstructing and, and, and chipping away and, and sort of dissoluting your bone. Okay. But, yeah, but they both have an important role. So they both um, serve to change your bone modelling um, depending on your circumstances. So the more athletic you are, you know, the it changes in that respect. And what makes your product better? So how is it that yours interacts better with with the bone? What 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 is the um um, actual, what's going on? What's going yes. on? Okay, so I'm only in my second year of my PhD, so I'm not fully sure yet what's going on. <laughs> that's, the, that's the idea, right? To find out? Yes, okay. yeah. Yes. How many years have you got left to work it out? Uh, about two years. Oh, that's fine then. <laughs> plenty of time. Yes. Yeah, but we're looking at a couple of specific strategies. So one of the strategies we're looking at is surface roughness. Ooh. So if you have a bit of texture on your implant, Bone cells, they love a bit of texture. They love to crawl around and hide in the nooks and crannies. So this is something mm. that I've observed on my samples when I'm doing my cell testing, mm. my cell cultures. Ooh. And um, really, they have their own personalities. It was really beautiful to see. The osteoblasts and, and oh, clasts, yes. do they? Yeah, I only work with osteoblasts. Osteoclasts are like they very, enemy? very pernickety. They, uh, <laughs> they're hard to work with. Oh, I see. But yeah, hopefully <laughs> soon. So in your cell culture, what does that... What does that look like? Have you got some cells in a in a dish and then some alloys that you? Oh no, the cells they they come to Triple R Studios. <laughs> That's where they get the culture from. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> you know our friendship is built on these horrible jokes. <laughs> um, but no, basically, so I have samples of my materials. So, for example, some three D printed titanium that Ooh. I've I've fiddled with to make it have a specific surface roughness and then basically I put it in I put it in media so media is um, not triple R again <laughs> but yeah basically food for the cells to <laughs> to eat and um, to swim around in then I stick the cells in there as well the cells hopefully will stick to the surface of my samples and grow and there's a couple of different ways we can test to see how well they've grown mm-hmm. um, how much they like the surface so are you sort of trying to mimic the environment in a real bone exactly okay. yeah yeah oh. 
Yeah. So that was one of them, the surface roughness. A couple of other ones, don't want to go into too much detail because we don't have too much time. But um, So uh, we're also looking at coatings on the surface. So basically, if you coat any hip replacement or any orthopedic replacement with a kind of bone mineral, that's all, that also makes it more friendly for the bone cells to adhere to. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Now, you quickly glid past uh, 3D printing like it's something that everyone knows oh, about. Oh, yeah, it's something I do every day, but not everyone does the, it every day. <laughs> as I said in the green room, I'm just getting my head around a fax machine. So 3D <laughs> printing, can you sort of um, give us the um, the uh, easy version? Of Basically, I can't. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so a 3D printing version. is yeah. everywhere these days. Everyone's heard of some kind of 3D yeah. printing. However, there's like a little bit of confusion because there's a couple of different types of 3D printing and a couple of different main materials that we use for 3D printing. So the 3D printing that probably everyone's had a bit of experience with is the polymer 3D printing. So you can find those 3D printers in places like Harvey Norman yeah. and so on. Oh, so yeah. they're the sorts of ones people might have in their house. Yes. yes, exactly. And what do we make with those? Well, you can make little trinkets for your family and friends with the ones <laughs> in your house. With the more industrial ones that we have at Monash, we do a lot of cool stuff. So there's another student at Monash, Lee Dumas, shout out, <laughs> who works a lot with the polymer 3D printers. We do a lot of prototyping with those printers and other cool stuff that you'll have to have him as a guest on to okay, talk about. Yeah. Thank you. Make a note of and that. and is the difference the the um, material that you the products you could obviously the diff, the um, the advanced products you can make, but is it also the material? Is yes, different? exactly. So that was group one with the polymers. Group right. two is the metals, which is my baby. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So there's a couple of different processes for using uh, metals in 3D printing. So actually we like to call it additive manufacturing in the metals industry. Additive manufacturing. Yeah, so okay. that's um, that actually explains it a lot. So conventional manufacturing is um, subtractive. So basically you whittle something down to get your final thing. Additive manufacturing, you build it up layer by layer. So it's bottom-up manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with my... Oh, sorry. Was oh, that a question? No, you go ahead, Trent. Yeah. <laughs> so the metal 3D printing that I work with, as I said, it's layer by layer, but it's very specialised. So obviously metals, they don't melt easily. So <laughs> we need to use very high power lasers and so on to... Wow. Yeah, with the powders to get them all into shape. Hey, this sounds really amazing and inventive. I'm wondering, have you got any precedent to go on? Are other joints already being done with 3D, like a knee's already <laughs> being well, done by 3D? Well, or? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> so there's a lot of scope already. So basically, obviously we've got all the implants happening already with conventional manufacturing. Um, for us as 3D printers, it's not too much of a big deal to transfer that across and try to replicate that in our 3D uh-huh. printing techniques. So actually, I have a story. It's a company that I work with, Signature Orthopedics. Um, they were... Ooh, yeah. So, they, <laughs> so they were contacted by someone and um, who wasn't able to take an off-the-shelf implant, so she needed a quite a customised one. Why was that? Um, she had... Was it uh, a complex kind of... Yeah, so she had a complex bone condition, which okay. meant that her bones weren't um, working well enough to accept the implant. Okay. Yeah, so okay. we were able to 3D print an implant for her, which is now implanted, and she's walking around. Wow. Again. And yeah. if it's 3D printed, does that mean it's specific to that person's anatomy? Mm. Yes, yeah. Wow. So that's a great thing yes. with 3D printing. Mm. Very, very easy to customise, very, very complex parts, hmm. but low volume. So for our purposes, so printing off uh, like a one-off implant for someone... It's really easy and doable. So you wouldn't use 3D printing, for example, for printing a 1,000 saucepans. 
Sure. Okay. So having just had a wonderful tune on qualies and wallies and yeah. dallies, <laughs> um, cost effectiveness and is this where we should be spend, you know, spending our health dollar? Is this well, a good way to spend our health dollar? That's a good question and something that we haven't really come to grips with yet. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we don't really have an answer for you. Um, the answer is hopefully perhaps in perhaps 50 years. So it's still a Whoa. long way off. Okay. So this really is the future. Yes. It really okay. is the future. So wow. do you know how much a current hip joint replacement costs and, and what it would if you could make one? What's comparatively? Mm. I actually don't know. Don't know. <laughs> too early? Yes. Yeah. Too, well, too early. Plus I'm not prepared. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> That's okay. That's but I can tell you that the machines themselves and the process – on a larger scale, so like um, Dr. Panapita was talking about before, the individual versus a larger scale, um, <laughs> the hip implants that are produced conventionally, the processes are all in place. So it's all like a machine. It's all easy to do a million of them. Yeah. So right. for mass production. Mass production. To... It's all prepared. But for the 3D printing, it's a little bit more complicated. Mm. So it's um, on a person-by-person basis. But... You don't have to put in a whole new set of tooling and so on to make that implant. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Now I'm getting really curious about where, like, the aspiration, I guess, to begin with is, like, to do something artificial but as closely replicable to what was there when it was well and healthy, right? Yeah. That's Mm. the initial aspiration. Now I'm really keen. Can you, could we do better than what? Uh, that's a really good there. question. Could Super we 3D human. print actual bone? Yeah. Could we get a better hip than we have naturally? <gasps> Are you talking about uh, the bionic man? Because I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering, I'm anticipating that your work is going to sometime in the future, if we're talking 50 years out, is sometime going to connect with robotics. <laughs> mm. Yeah, well, that's the dream, isn't it? Oh, is it? Could yeah. we just <laughs> <a good> <laughs> Can we just 3D print ourselves a whole new skeleton? Yes. Well, possibly. Invincible? (laughs) See, the problem is 3D printing, you think if you have the materials, you should be able to print out the thing, just like a regular paper printer. Surely, right? But it's a little bit more difficult than that. (laughs) I suspected as much. Yeah, so um, just printing out a whole skeleton perhaps wouldn't be as effective because (laughs) (laughs) because of what we talked about before with how it's remodelled based on your lifestyle Uh, and that's to do with the cells. So there's a lot of work being done at the moment with um, 3D printing, um, more with the polymers and gels and so on, not so much with the metals, not at all with the metals, I should say, (laughs) of printing cells into the actual thing that's being printed. Wow. So it's a living thing. Yeah, so it's basically a living thing. So you might have seen ears and and so on. Yeah, but that's, that's still... I said 50 years for the previous thing. This is probably even more than that. Mm. Holy moly. So it looks yeah. like when I need my hip replacement, you're mm. not going to be able to help me, Trina. I'm gonna, I, I'll try to help you. I'll bring you out a custom one. <laughs> yeah. But it's just a regular. It's, it's not super bionic. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, well. <laughs> my goodness. But that's okay. The next PhD student's got you covered. Oh, good. I like the ear <laughs> So the children that are born today are going to have sick hips. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> fully sick. Okay. Yeah, fully sick. Cool. Yeah. All right. Trina Majumdar, thank you so much for sharing with us. That was really fascinating. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We just heard about Trina's fascinating futuristic research about hip replacements and biomaterials and 3D printing, and it was all a bit overwhelming. Um, And now I'm going to talk a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) 
Best part of the day. <laughs> tell us. Tell us. Dr. Okay, Fabian. now I'll start talking. Um, I went to a conference a few weeks ago. It was AMSA Global Health Conference. So AMSA is the Australian Medical Students Association. They're like the Australian Medical Association, but with better parties. Uh, they had a co- held a conference in Newcastle about global health. Um, I'll just start by talking a little bit about what global health is because I think it's one of those terms that people throw around hmm. without quite knowing what it means. Uh, and I didn't know what it meant until recently either. So global health is basically about health equity worldwide um, and acknowledging that there are lots of barriers to accessing good health care mm. throughout the world and in Australia as well. So those, those barriers might be financial, they might be to do with location if you're in a remote area, uh, race and religion might be an issue, gender inequality, the climate and, of course, climate change, war and conflict. There's all these things that get in the way of people accessing good health care. Mm. Um, and studying and working in global health We've had a good discussion about qualies and dallies before. Um, it's about acknowledging that that global health is complex and that it sucks that people don't have equal access to healthcare and that we should try and fix that, hmm. basically. So this conference, the Global Health Conference, I'll call it GHC for short, if that's all right with everybody. Another um, acronym. Many acronyms. <laughs> yeah, sorry, we're overwhelmed yeah. at too many acronyms today. Um, so it was for medical students all over Australia, over 700 of us went to Newcastle and listened to a bunch of really fantastic speakers and um, did some workshops. It was it was wonderful. We heard from Julian Burnside and David Mann, the human rights lawyers, about the rights of asylum seekers and refugees and this country's horrendous treatment of mm. them. We heard from Alana Maycock, sticking with the asylum seekers and refugees issue. We heard from Alana Maycock, who's a paediatric nurse, and Associate Professor David Isaacs, who's a paediatrician. They're both from Sydney and they travelled to Nauru Detention Centre a few years ago and you'll recall that there's a law against health professionals whistleblowing um, about what they see on Nauru and Manus Island but these two spoke up anyway risked going to jail about it and it was really fascinating and pretty gut-wrenching to hear about what they saw there. I, I could go on. There were so many good speakers. Mm, it, it, was a, it was a fabulous week. Um, but what yeah. I would like to talk about in particular is a particular speaker and her experience. So we heard from Dr. Kathleen Thomas. She's an Australian intensive care doctor. I think she's a registrar at the moment. And she volunteers with Doctors Without Borders or Médecins Sans Frontières, if you're feeling mm-hmm. fancy. Um, and she was, she was an eyewitness to the bombing of a MSF hospital in Kunduz in Afghanistan last year. It got a bit of media coverage at the time, mm-hmm. so you might have heard about it, yeah. So she was working in this trauma centre, which was run by MSF, and the the fighting in the area got really bad. I I think the Taliban took over the city, and Mm. Dr Thomas and her colleagues were advised to stay in the hospital. They were told, stay in the hospital, don't leave, that's the safest place for you to be. Um, So they set up makeshift beds, I think, in the kitchen of the hospital. It was all, um, it was pretty, you know, sort of smashed... makeshift stuff, you know, Um, and they thought they were safe there, but then in the middle of the night, the hospital was bombed for about an hour. Um, And Dr Thomas spoke about seeing her patients and colleagues injured horrendously and killed in this attack, as you can imagine. Um, She was very emotional about it when she was talking to us. I think she was really brave to share her experience with us because it was obviously really traumatic. Um, So in this attack, 42 people were killed and 14 of them were hospital staff. And it turned out that it was a US Mm. aircraft that carried out the attacks. Oh, my gosh. So under international law, hospitals are meant to be protected, right, in times of war. That makes sense. 
um, Dr. Kathleen Thomas spoke about how a Red Cross used to guarantee protection in, in times of war. Uh, this trauma centre was run by MSF and it, its location was known to the US military and other relevant parties. Um, they'd provided their G GPS coordinates and they had flags visible on the roof. And once the attack started, they were in contact with military personnel telling them, you're bombing a hospital, please stop. They contacted um, the military in Afghanistan. They also contacted the Pentagon directly. Um, but the attack continued for at least half an hour. Uh, the US have since said that it was a mistake and it's not for me to speculate on whether that's true or not. But Dr Thomas was very unsatisfied with the whole process because there's been no independent inquiry into how it happened and how such a mistake could happen and how it could continue for such a long time after being told this isn't, you know, we're not a target. So this story is obviously horrendous, right? And hearing about her experience was just awful. But what I found absolutely horrifying is that this wasn't a one-off event, Dr. Thomas talked about how, um, as I said, a Red Cross used to ensure protection, but now she knows of hospitals in places like Syria and Yemen being built underground and doctors and nurses walking around in disguise because they're in such danger. 75 MSF hospitals were attacked in 2015. So that's just what? last year, 75, yeah. And since unrest broke out in Syria, 250 hospitals have been targeted there and 700 doctors and nurses in Syria have been killed in that time. Um, and according to Dr Thomas, 90% of these attacks have been, have been perpetrated by nation states. Mm. So we're not talking about ISIS or other rogue mm. groups. We're talking about actual nation states who've signed the Geneva Convention. Yeah. So these are war crimes. Um, if they know that it's a hospital, if they're knowingly bombing it, and I suppose that's another question, whether they know they're doing it or not, or if it's collateral damage, mm. in inverted commas. Um, but there just doesn't seem to be any accountability, and I think that was Dr Thomas's major concern, that it just keeps happening and that yeah. it's sort of becoming quite normalised. Yeah. Um, and I think also what's really awful about it is that MSF... Uh, they have really strict rules about being nonpartisan. They treat absolutely anybody that comes in, no matter what side of the um, the war or you know this, this, which side of the fray they come from. They're strictly non-militarized themselves, so none of the staff have weapons. They don't wear any protection. The hospitals themselves aren't barricaded or anything like that. They rely on their reputation as being nonpartisan, and that that means that the communities look after them because they know they're going to be treating everybody so to be turning on msf like this is really quite unimaginable i, I, I just don't know how it, it's awful to think about and i just wanted i wanted to talk about that because i just think it's not quite getting the coverage it deserves i mean that's a really good point i'm so glad that you brought this up uh training wheels because um look i ideologically and uh financially i've always supported this the msf i think do an amazing job yeah. and in my days of when I was young, a young idealistic doctor, mm. I thought one day I'd go over there and help out. Obviously, that didn't ever happen. Mm. But, um, you know, they do do an amazing job. And I must admit, when I get the newsletters or the online stuff, I, I read about this mm. attack and I just assumed incorrectly that it was a part of the civil mm. war or, you know, when I when I went to the program after you uh, listed this as, as a topic for today, I watched the um, Foreign Correspondence Program. Do you know when that was from? I haven't seen uh, that one. April. Okay. And I was, I was just gobsmacked and I was ashamed to think that I hadn't gone, you know, th read more about mm. it and I was so distressed to hear her story uh, Dr um, Kathleen Thomas, Thomas yes mm. she was on there but 
the thing that really struck me was the, and I'm sorry I don't remember her, recall her name, the president of the MSF speaking to the UN delegates mm. about what's been happening. There's been 440 hospitals attacked in four years Horrendous. and that this just has to stop. And she's stared down the US... Um, delegate who sat there squirming, shuffling her papers, not mm. wanting to, you know, engage eye contact, and that just said it all. You know, mm. it's just an embarrassment that um, that we, you know, the United Nations and all these people who are charged with the idea of protecting those who can't look, at, you know, protect themselves are, are responsible for some of these terrible, you know, incidences. And I just thought, yeah, you should be embarrassed because Absolutely. she was just. You need to watch that vision, and it's just so telling that yeah, well. they really realise that they've uh, they've obviously not done the right thing and the spin that that mm. afterwards um, because as you said there's no independent inquiry. Mm. You know, the perpetrators are the ones who are the judge and the jury. And they basically run the UN anyway. And they've just said we made, you know, a cascade of errors mm. uh, resulted in this um, this particular episode. Um, but, you know, if you read all the information about, um, as you say, these facilities are protected under, you know, international humanitarian laws, mm. which stipulates what it means to be one of these protected places, yes. you know, it, it does sound like um, a war crime. Essentially, yeah, yeah. and, and the, the coordinates were known. Definitely, yeah. they yeah. they they've told the military people in the area. I don't know what the correct terms are. Um, they've told them of their location. They shouldn't know that that's a hospital. that's not a target. Yeah. And I think at some stage the US were saying, "Oh, we thought you were you were a, a Taliban one. base or something." Yes, because and um, then they've since retracted that. And I mean, yeah, there was a whole lot of thing, isn't it? How many stories. people are involved in each of these things? Like just a single incident. And to hear that it's 440 in four years, think how many people are culpable in this? Absolutely. How many people are responsible for a part of these war crimes? And then they contacted, so the MSF, so this hospital in Kunduz, they're ringing the local Afghanistan, you know, the US base in Afghanistan or whatever they are, and saying, you're bombing a hospital, stop, and that didn't work, they still get bombed. So then they contact their office in New York and they were able to contact the Pentagon directly and say, stop, you're bombing a hospital. And apparently on the phone the people are saying, we'll try our best. Like they, there's got oh, to they, be the, more. The message what? was we're we're praying for you all. Yeah, they actually show that the response. That's right. And it says, yeah. "Oh, we'll do what we can. We're praying for you all," which kind of sounded like a death sentence right. to me. You know, we we really can't do much. Basically, you know, it's all fait accompli. But yeah, that that documentary is, is just astounding. You can yeah. get more information too. So Dr. Kathleen Thomas has set up a website. It's stopbombinghospitals.org, and she's got a bunch to of the point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and she's got. She talks about, um, so obviously her experience was in Afghanistan, but this is a huge problem in Yemen as well and Mm, in Syria too. So she's collated a bunch of articles. Um, I think her idea is just sort of getting the word out about Mm. it. Um, It's it's a great website. There's heaps of resources on there. The MSF website have a lot of information too. So she she was obviously, um, you know, as you were just relaying, she was pointing to state-based actors, you know, Mm. as, as... as uh, perpetrators um, and we've heard from them and they say oh it was some variation on the theme of accident mm, you know, yeah. our intelligence failed us and we, we thought it was something, something else mm. did she herself offer any interpretation of why it happened she didn't at the at the conference and I think she's probably careful not to uh, what's the word I've just had a brain fart and I can't think the word is. Incriminate incriminate herself, I guess. On the documentary, she did say that there was um, intelligence 
um, from the Afghani military to the US to say that the Taliban were holed up at this particular facility. Yeah. But the rules of, of these facilities are that no one is allowed in there, as you said, with mm. any weaponry. Mm. And the second you, the only reason people can be treated there is if they um, have got a medical issue. Mm. And the second you step in there, you are, it's then completely bipartisan. You're only treated on medical merit, not, doesn't matter what your religion, and even if you're injured and a participant, once you get into the facility, then that's all ignored. So perhaps there were some Taliban fighters in there getting treated, medical yeah. attention. Yeah. Um, but the, the Afghanis actually gave the US some intelligence to really? say that, that was a... And that's... And the sad thing is now that was the only trauma centre in northern Afghanistan yes, and, and now nothing. that that's been destroyed, there's nothing left. No. So people who are suffering horrendous injuries have got hours and hours to travel over mountains and all this and they well, haven't been able to... Um, it's gone now. So now it's in such a worse state in that region. Well, there's one in Shadara, which is miles away from where it is and, and that's probably going to be a target as well. Yeah, well, probably. Um, so sorry to leave to finish up on a bit of a sombre note, everybody, but I, I think that's important. As I said, you can find out more information at stopbombinghospitals.org and msf.org.au. They've got heaps of information there as well. And if you want to, if you've got some spare change, please do donate to them. Thank you so much to the panel, Dr. Panel Beda, Dr. Capri, our special guest, Trina Majumda, and I am Dr. Training Wheels. You've been listening to Radiotherapy. Einsteiner Gogo is up next. Remember, you can listen on the podcast and have your say on Facebook. Thank you very much. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R 102.7. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.